There's a verse in the Bible that I've always found to be oddly haunting and helpful at the same time. The verse is in the book of Matthew, an account of the life of Jesus. And towards the end of the book, Jesus gets arrested and is being brought to the trial that will lead to his death. But all of his best friends who have been by his side for three years get scared for their lives and run away. What's worse is a few hours earlier, Peter gave Jesus this pep talk about how he would follow him all the way to the end, even if that leads to death. Great thought, Peter. But what happened? Well, Matthew lets us in on a little secret. Chapter 26, verse 58 tells us that while everyone is running away, Peter followed at a distance followed him at a distance. Think about that for a second. That means Peter was there, sort of. He he couldn't make up his mind, too scared to go stand by his best friend's side, but also terrified of giving it all up. He had come too far and seen too much to turn back now. So we find Peter stuck between a rock and a hard place, arguing with himself, stalling as he follows at a distance. I get that. Something about Peter following at a distance resonates with me, especially the more I study the hours leading up to that moment. See, there is something profound going on underneath this simple story, a truth about what it means to be human, and that truth has a gravitational pull to it. It won't let Peter walk away. Because although this must have been the longest night of his life, it was also an essential night. All the pain, all the fear, all the embarrassment. It was nothing but preparation, equipping Peter to become one of the most effective leaders this world has ever seen. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. This is the story of The Table. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. Today's story is part one of seven about a meal that changed the course of the world. The darkness stood ominously against the bright moonlight. He had to walk quickly across the quiet streets of Jerusalem to get to the meeting on time. The chief priest hated to wait and the messenger had made it clear that this meeting was of highest importance. It regarded Jesus of Nazareth. The man had been a thorn in the side of the council for three years. The chief priests and scribes were all present by the time he got there. Angry shouts and accusations flew about the room. Our best minds have challenged him. We've asked him the same questions rabbis had struggled with for centuries, but his answers threaten our very community. How can an unlearned son of a carpenter teach in the synagogue? We've never allowed anyone to do that. And it has only gotten worse this week. He rode in on a donkey, and the people threw palm fronds down for him. I agree, the problem is not just this Jesus. It is the people who follow and listen to him. But what can we do about it? We've tried everything. Every time we've attempted to shame him, the people are drawn more and more to him. It is not like we can kill him. You're right. We can't. Anas says cryptically. Nicodemus's eyes narrowed. He looks at Anas. He knew what the chief priest was thinking. Say what you truly mean, Anas. Rome. The other men went quiet. 
While the room fell silent, they heard a knock at the door. One of the servants excused himself and went to answer. After a few minutes, he returned with a bewildered look on his face. Someone is here to see the council. Who would dare disturb us at this time? Tell whoever it is to go and come back at a more appropriate time. But it's one of them. Anas turned to look at the servant. A look of annoyance slowly transformed into giddy anticipation. Please show him in. Judas Iscariot slowly approached the group. He looked like a man long past the point of return. His face was white, like the many sheep brought to the temple during Passover. He looked from face to face, uncertain what to do or say next. I know why you are meeting. The men stared back at Judas. You are scared. How dare you? The council fears no one but Yahweh. How dare come to our meeting and accuse... You are scared of my rabbi because he is a leader you all wish you could be. The group has gone deadly silent. Their anger suddenly found a new target. Anas was about to have the man thrown out. He was not one to be insulted. Not a man of his position, not in his own home. He nodded towards the temple guards present. They moved ominously towards Judas. Judas, seeing the moment, became more sure of himself. A look of satisfaction flashed across his face. I have what you need. I know where he will be tonight. Anas raised his hand. The temple guard stopped. The smile returned to Anas. He will be alone, away from the people. The men murmur excitedly. Anas raises his hand again. They fall quiet. And surely this information is valuable to such as you. What are you willing to give for it? Anas stepped closer to Judas. He looked intently at him. He knew this kind of man, the kind of man to betray a friend, a rabbi. He knew Judas had spent three years with Jesus. Anas remembered studying under his own rabbi, the thrill of being chosen, the wonder of deeper knowledge, but also the resentment. The resentment of serving a man you know to be your inferior. It had driven Anas to try to take charge of the Pharisees. He saw much of himself in Judas. 30 pieces of silver. He expected Iscariot to laugh in his face at the offer, to be insulted and walk out, but the man agreed. Done. I will send a messenger when the time is right. With that, Judas left. The men looked around in bewildered triumph. The men knew their victory was but a pouch of silver away, a small price for triumph. God was truly with them this night. Simon Bar-Jonah was a completely ordinary man. And that's what makes this story so extraordinary. He was a fisherman, born in Bethsaida, a small village on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and eventually made his way to Capernaum, where he and his brother Andrew took over the family business, working alongside two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Day after day, they fished, which is hard work, and requires long hours, often through the night, with no guarantee of success. But Simon persevered, and by his early 20s, he was married, he had a home, and everything was just fine. But all that changed one day when he met a Jewish rabbi named Jesus. Rabbis typically didn't give Simon Bar-Jonah the time of day, but Jesus was different. 
The first time Jesus met Simon, he gave him a new name, Cephas, an Aramaic word for a piece of rock or a stone. In Koine Greek, the language the majority of the New Testament is written in, the name is Petros, which of course is translated in English to the name you and I know him by, Peter. And then the rabbi gave him an invitation to drop everything and follow him. And to Peter's credit, he does. For three years, Peter travels with the rabbi, proclaiming good news to the poor, restoring sight to the blind, feeding the hungry, and challenging all sorts of religious systems. But this story takes place after all of that. Three years of ministry has all been leading up to this moment, and Peter has no idea what he's in for. Jerusalem is the place to be for Jews in the first century, especially during feasts. Jerusalem was the center of the world for the Jewish people. If the world was a wheel, the city was its hub. For Romans, all roads led to Rome. For Peter, all roads eventually led back to Jerusalem. The roads he and the other traveled were spokes, some straight and true, some broken and dark, but all leading to God's city. Three times a year, the men of Israel find their way back. Moses, their forefather, and the journey through the desert set the law. All men must come to the temple three times. Each feast was important, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the true event. Peter loved Jerusalem during Passover. Springtime in Jerusalem was unparalleled. The people crowded in the city, the smells, the sounds, it all pointed towards the coming feast. It was the beginning of the year, a time to remember what Yahweh had done for their ancestors so many years ago in Egypt, a time to celebrate the coming year. It was Peter's favorite high holiday. As they walked down the hills to the east, the temple shot into view. The sun glimmered off its face, shooting gold darts on the walls around it. It blinded Peter a little. Once inside, he and John slowly made their way through the people. The air hummed with the noise of holy practice. Vendors spun honeyed words to those travelers whose guard was down from the long, weary journey. Small children wove between the legs like living thread hoping to catch a distracted vendor's goods. All manners of accents rose into the city's dense air, a dissonant orchestra of distant lands and familiar smells. Peter nervously glanced around at each step. Every now and then Peter saw a Pharisee pass by and his stomach would tighten. He wanted to avoid being noticed by the religious leaders, something he would never have dreamed thinking as a young boy in synagogue. He had warned Rabbi not to come back to the city. Something bad would happen. The last time they were here, the religious leaders had driven them out under threat of death. Rabbi didn't seem concerned. When they were here last, Rabbi had claimed to be one with the Father. That had angered the wrong people. You do not want to be on the wrong side of the chief priests. They held unusual power in the city. Even Rome hesitated to challenge them. And Rabbi had done just that. The religious leaders had questioned Rabbi with stones in their hands. Yet they had escaped, as they always did. Peter found himself continually astounded at Rabbi's ability to silence the priests. In all the three years Peter had followed Rabbi, not once had he been in true danger. Peter had a strange feeling that was about to change. Though he couldn't explain why, Peter knew that this was the last time they would all be together in Jerusalem. Rabbi glanced at him. Peter? Yes, Rabbi. Take John. Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Of course. Peter had gotten about 10 paces away from the group. He was eager to please in a natural-born leader, but he often acted before he thought. He turned back towards them. They all had quizzical smiles. 
He knew they often wondered what Rabbi saw in him with a faith they never seemed to waver. John chuckled to himself. Rabbi? Yes, Peter? Where? There's a man in the city carrying a jug of water. He'll meet you. Follow him. And whatever house he takes you to, find the master and tell him the teacher needs his guest room for Passover. He'll take you to an upper room. Prepare it there. In another life, Peter would have found those instructions strange, but not anymore. Not after three years of enigmatic sayings, inexplicable miracles, and unfathomable actions. He had learned long ago to simply say yes and do what was needed. Things worked out for the best when he did just that. Peter motioned to John and the two set off, searching the dense crowd for a man with water. As they went off, Peter looked back once more at the group. With space between him and Rabbi, he began to think. Old feelings began to bubble to the surface of his soul. Why had he decided to follow this man? What had drawn him to this carpenter from the middle of nowhere? What was missing in his life that he had dropped everything? What truly was he doing? Any group that spends three years traveling the world together is bound to have some complaints. And when you're the number two, you're usually the one that hears all of them. Every number two knows this because people always have opinions and they're usually too afraid to take it up with the leader. So what do they do? They find the number two and chew his or her ear off. Then the number two sorts through it all and decides what is important enough to bring to the leader. It's a pretty heavy weight to carry, but Peter was good at carrying it. Although if I had to guess, in this moment, with some space to himself, the doubts he always pushes down probably began to surface. Maybe the group was right. Why were they back in Jerusalem? Does the rabbi have a death wish? If so, what was the point of the last three years? Fear, uncertainty, anger, it all begins to surface. And any person who's ever left a job, a home, or a spouse has felt the exact same way. Why would we come back here, Peter thought. They're looking for him. Why would he voluntarily return to the place they threatened his life? Peter was walking quickly now. He kept to the sides of the streets, clinging to the walls. Each shout, every flash of purple shook Peter's nerves. He found himself leading John in circles. He needed to get back to the task at hand. He thought to himself, focus, Peter. Was that a temple guard? Focus. That man recognizes me. Focus. Peter stopped. The rabbi had given him a task, and the rest of the group needed him. The task was strange, though. A man carrying water? Why would a man perform such a task? That was the job of the women. Joshua had punished the Gibeonites for their deception by making them carry water. It was meant to humiliate the proud men who had tricked him. John, brother, why would rabbi ask us to find a man carrying water? It is strange, isn't it? Very. The two wander about the temple for a while. Peter begins to wonder if the rabbi might have been mistaken. Maybe it was not a man carrying water, but something else. Then Peter saw him, and the man saw him too. They locked gazes and, as if intuitively, they knew they were looking for each other. The man's eyes tell Peter all he needs to know. Silently, the man continued walking. Peter and John followed closely behind. As they approached the house, the master came out to greet them. The man excitedly ushers them inside. Peter begins to make the preparations. Meals were a big deal in these days. 
Who you ate with was a statement. Sitting down with someone for a meal is another way of saying, these are my people. Put simply, meals were a lot like a junior high lunchroom on the first day of school. Everyone walks into a space, a bit on edge, trying to figure out where they belong, hoping there is a place at the table for them. So as you can imagine, important meals like the Passover held a lot of significance. And although Peter obviously knew he was invited to this Passover meal with the rabbi, his mind must have been racing. He was put in charge of setting up this room. That means this was his show. Not only did everything have to be perfect, he needed to be ready to lead the meal. He couldn't let the rabbi down, and if he did, he might lose his place as number two. Peter walked back into the upper room to check on everything once again. He adjusted the pillows they would lay on while eating. He smoothed the fabric on the table. He pinched a speck of the bread off the plates where rabbi would sit. The place of honor. He had finished the meal preparations some time ago. Now he and John waited. But Peter was never good at waiting. He needed something to do. This time, after the meals prepared and before the arrival of the group, made Peter uneasy. Peter reflected on the task he had performed. Rabbi had singled he and John out to go ahead. That wasn't unusual. He and John had been singled out before. Rabbi had told them exactly where they would eat. The law laid out exactly what the meal would be. He even knew exactly how many people would be there. Yet, he couldn't help but wonder and hope. Wonder if Thomas would like the wine hoped the sons of Zebedee were comfortable enough. Would they all feel at peace? Did his preparations set the right tone for the feast? So Peter had kept himself distracted by checking and rechecking everything. I took an acting class in college once. Acting for non-majors, emphasis on the for non-majors part. I wasn't any good at it. But every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, we'd meet in the back of the sweaty old gymnasium and try to act. Now each class started with the same exercise. For the first 10 minutes, the professor gave us a scenario, assigned us all characters, and said action. Then we had to interact with each other, improvising everything. Think whose line is it anyways, except without all the talent. So I would think to myself, okay, who is so-and-so supposed to be? According to the world standards, how should this person react in this given situation? In other words, I would spend 10 minutes pretending to be someone I'm not. It's called acting. Have you ever tried it? It's exhausting. But I give it my best shot, as my professor watched, probably angry that he drew the short straw and had to entertain all the non-acting majors. And once he'd seen enough, he'd always say the same two words, and seen. Those two words were always a huge relief, and seen meant enough is enough. No more acting. You can stop pretending to be someone you aren't. Finally, Peter hears the welcome sound of voices, the sweet lilt of laughter, the shout of friendly disagreement, the unrefined chatter of his friends as they made their way to the house. Peter could hear them above the din of the city. Peter rushes down the stairs. He must be at the door to greet them when they arrive. He shouts to the servants to get ready. He will be with them in a moment to finalize the service. As he gets to the door, he rehearses his instructions to everyone, telling them where to sit, arranging the room again. The other 11 are looking to him for direction and guidance. Peter feels most comfortable when they defer to him. He feels like it's why Rabbi called him those years ago. But Rabbi has other thoughts. As he enters the room, 
He says the one thing that changes the whole night. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Peter stops. He stares at Rabbi. In one moment, Peter is aware of a heavy burden that he's been carrying all day, all week, probably his whole life. In the next, he feels the relief of Rabbi's words. Peter always desires to be the focus of all attention. That means he has to bear the expectation of being seen at each moment. With one simple statement, Rabbi has taken that burden from him. Why do I place such pressure on myself each and every time I let my pride and anxiety get the better of me? He looks back at Rabbi. Wave after wave of relief pour over him. Suddenly, he's back on the Sea of Galilee, walking incredibly on the water to Jesus. The kindness of his eyes, confidence of his voice compelled Peter out of the boat. The freedom and ecstasy of letting go. It was the same feeling he feels now when Rabbi says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. With those words, Peter's reminded that tonight is not about him. He will not have to host. He will get to enjoy a meal with his closest friends, Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, who called Peter out of obscurity to follow him, the man who had caused so much joy in Peter, the teacher who eludes the authorities at every turn. He will host the dinner tonight. Now we're getting somewhere. See, in this moment, we have the creator of the universe in the form of a man on his last night, his final hours, and there is nothing he would rather do than sit down at a table with his buddies and share a meal. Eagerly, I have desired to eat this meal with you. Do you know what Jesus just said? He just said, and seen. Stop acting. Stop auditioning. This isn't a tryout. You don't have to earn your place at the table. There's room. Come in, sit, eat. This is everything. God has a place set at the table for you. So no matter how much it feels like it, life isn't a junior high lunchroom because the creator of the universe is sitting at the table with a smile on his face, welcoming you to come and join. Now, there are so many implications for this, and we're going to keep returning to this idea throughout the entire story. But for today, here's a big one. You already have a spot at the table, so stop acting. Stop trying to fit a certain mold. Stop trying to be the man or woman that you feel this world wants you to be. And start being the man or woman you were created to be. Do you see it? Okay, here's an example, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it's just too good not to. As I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, there is a big storm coming. In a few hours, Jesus will be arrested and everything will go sideways. And he knows this. So during the meal, he tells them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Which, by the way, was to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah 13:7, written back in 518 BC. But, anyways, he tells Peter and the rest of the guys it's about to go down. And when it does, none of you will be able to hang. You are all going to run away. But Peter hears this, can't believe it, and responds, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus sighs looks him in the eye and says, truly I tell you this very night 
before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter's not having it. He stands up and declares, even if I have to die, I will never disown you. Now, on one hand, great. Well done, Peter. Let's give him some credit. I think he really wants to believe the statement he just made. The only problem is he doesn't. We know this because when the pressure gets turned up, Peter folds and runs away, which means at the table, he's actually terrified, but he wants to save face. So what does he do? He puts his acting face on and pretends to be Mr. Tough Guy who isn't afraid of anything. Why? Because he still doesn't understand the table. He still doesn't understand that his spot at the table is not contingent on him fitting a mold. His spot is there because he's a human being. See, if Peter just understood, then at some point during dinner, he could have taken a deep breath and said, hey, hey guys, I need to say something. I know I, uh, I try to always act like I have it all together, but the truth is I'm actually pretty terrified right now and confused. Like we, we left everything to follow you, Jesus, and it's been an incredible three years, but now you're talking about leaving and us continuing this movement, and I just don't see how that is going to happen. How do you think Jesus would have responded? I think in that moment, a smile would have come across his face. A now we're getting somewhere sort of smile. Because think about how much time and energy you devote to securing your seat at the table. I do it all the time. But what if we could take all that time and energy and devote it into doing some incredible things for the kingdom of God, things that actually lead to freedom and real life transformation, not just for you, but for everyone you interact with. That would be a game changer. Peter still doesn't get it, but he will. And I think we will too. Three men approached the palace of Caiaphas, Anas and two other chief priests. Caiaphas had commanded them to come verify the message they had sent earlier that night. They rushed to his table, ignoring his servants. They threw out custom and ritual. This was too important to stand on formalities. Their excitement barely contained as they stood in his presence. Please, sit, Caiaphas says with measured politeness. They sit. He gazes at them for a moment, a nod, subtle but heavy. The men speak on top of each other. The one called Iscariot wishes to join our cause against this Jesus of Nazareth. He has provided information. He will indicate who the traitor is once the temple guards get there. This is our chance. Caiaphas raises his hand. The men fall silent. Can we trust him? Again, a cascade of voices. You should have seen him, Caiaphas. He shook like an olive tree during the harvest. His heart burns with anger at the man's blasphemy. He's terrified of what this Jesus will do. He wants him stopped. Caiaphas looks to Anas. Caiaphas, you should have seen how his eyes glimmered when I showed him the silver. Caiaphas smiles. He now knows what kind of man Judas Iscariot will be. After weeks of preparation and prayer, he can finally exhale. He sees it all unrolling like the Talmud. Summon him again. We move forward when he arrives. There's an elephant in the room that we still haven't addressed. Yes, Jesus is inviting Peter to the table, but he's also inviting someone else, a man named Judas. And that demands an explanation. 
which is exactly where we're heading, starting in episode two, when we talk about one of the most backwards moments of all time, the moment the creator of the universe washed the feet of the man who betrayed him. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SIS Project.